You are cordially invited to the manor in the woods, where an evening of discussion is being held by the O'Brien siblings. Catherine, the encyclopedia, Carolyn, the bookworm, Madeline, the wild card, and Mackenzie, the eclectic. Join them in the study where there will be talk of murder, robbery, deception, and conveniently cloaked figures. So get cozy, pour yourself a cuppa, and join us for mostly murder. But sometimes not. Okay, so we are here again, listeners. Um, I am... (laughs) Who are we? Really bad at this. Good, good one. Good one. (laughs) I'm sorry. Okay, so this is uh, mostly murder, but sometimes not. As we all know, it's a podcast where all of us uh, Skype each other and talk about a mystery thing that we have watched or read or listened to um, lots of different various ways in, in which one can intake mystery. Um, I'm hosting this episode, so uh, first of all, let me apologize for me. Um, my name is Carrie, and my siblings are with me. They are Katie, Maddie, and I'm Mac. There we go. <laughs> okay, you're so good at this. I, you know what? I was really bad last time because it was the first one after we hadn't recorded for like two years, and I promised myself I would do better. We'll see. <laughs> it might be worse. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. We'll let the listeners decide. Okay, so for this episode of our podcast, we watched a movie. Um, it is the 1974 Murder on the Orient Express. Um. This is probably one of the more famous murder mystery stories. Um, It's been a radio play. It's been movies, multiple movies, TV movies. Uh, Obviously, it started out as a book because it's Agatha Christie. Um, And so going into the plot a little bit, it is uh, basically, it's our second Poirot property. And it's also our second Poirot actor. So uh, we can kind of uh, compare, contrast a little bit there. So the story is basically um, Poirot, you, like you, it opens on the most glorious 1970s version of 1930s title cards. It's really great. And so we see a lot of newspapers about the Armstrong family, which is very obviously... Um, an homage to the Lindbergh family and their tragedy. Um, so then it's like five years later and we see um, numerous people getting on a ferry and um, Poirot is one of them. I did not just spill beer on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> we were trying to keep it together for you, Carrie. Yeah, we definitely weren't all being very silent because you were popping in and out of Skype and we didn't want to accidentally interrupt you. Yeah. That's also happening, but that's fine. Am I breaking up? Yeah. No, no, keep going. Yeah, it's fine. No, okay, well, I'll keep going on um, the explanation and turn the wireless off of all of my devices. 
Okay, so... So you're um, on a ferry. Yeah, so it's five years after we see all the newspapers about the Armstrong, a.k.a. Lindbergh tragedy. Um, and so there's Poirot on a ferry in Istanbul five years later, and uh, we kind of see a collection of characters gathering to board the Orient Express. Um... I'm just going to read from the Wikipedia because there are a lot of characters and I feel like it would be easier because they can explain it better than me. <coughs> Preach. All right, so, yes, shut up. The other passengers traveling in Poirot's coach are the American widow Harriet Hubbard, the American businessman Samuel Ratchet with his English manservant Edward Beddoes, and his secretary-slash-translator, Hector McQueen, an elderly Russian princess, Natalia Dragomirov, and her German maid, Hildegard Schmidt, the Hungarian diplomat, Count Rudolf Endrenyi, and his wife, Elena, British Indian Army officer, Colonel John Arbutnot, Mary Debenham, a teacher, Greta Olsen, a Swedish missionary, Italian-American car salesman, Antonio Foscarelli, and Cyrus Hardman, an American theatrical agent. So um, they all are on the train and traveling together, and Poirot ends up next to Mr. Ratchet. So then one night, there's a bunch of noises. Poirot wakes up. He looks out in the hall. Um, I think he sees Pierre, who's like a... He wasn't in the list, was he? Yeah, there's some people you're missing, like the doctor. Uh, or the well, guy who owns the train. Bianchi. The, the, the doc, Dr. Constantine and Bianchi are actually in a different coach. So maybe that's why. Oh, they're in the, what is it called? The, the Kelly coach? Kelly. The Kelly yeah, coach. Yeah. Yes, okay, so those all the people I mentioned were in the Kelly coach. Then there's also um, an Italian man, Signor Bianchi, who is... Um, one of the directors of the line, the train line, um, he's in a different coach, and so is Dr. Constantine. And then there's like a conductor man named Pierre who's kind of responsible for all of the passengers in the, the coach. So um, it's nighttime. Poirot hears some noises in the cabin next to him, which is Mr. Ratchet, and then um, he hears Pierre knocking. And then someone responding in French that he's fine. It was just a nightmare. And then later, Mrs. Hubbard is like ringing her bell for Pierre and is like, there's a man in my room. Um, and there's no one there. So then the next morning, um, Bianchi, I forget who discovers it, but Mr. Ratchet has been murdered. He was stabbed 12 times. Um, and so they kind of have to go through... He asks Poirot to solve the murder because they're stuck in a snowdrift and he wants it to be solved by the time that they meet the Yugoslavian police. So um, they start interviewing witnesses, which is basically everyone in the coach, and find out various information until Poirot is like, I know who did it. And he does his room time in the coach and basically lays out this whole thing like first of all he's like here's a really simple explanation it could be uh one plus two equals three 
We can present it to the police and that will be that. Or it's this, which is what actually happened, um, which is that every single person on this train in this coach is responsible for the murder. They all took part in it because they were all tangentially or directly um, involved with the Armstrong family and um, Daisy Armstrong, the little girl who was kidnapped and thus and then killed. So, yeah, um, uh, by the way, Ratchet is the one that did that. I, I don't know if that was explained. Carrie kind of went in and out. Oh, sorry. I forgot about that. Uh, well, it, it kind of it comes out in during the um, the interviews that Ratchet is not Ratchet. He's Cassetti. He's a mob guy who was responsible for the kidnapping and death of Daisy Armstrong. So everyone on the coach is tangentially involved with the Armstrong family in some way and has um, some motivation to want Cassetti dead. So um, Poirot was like, all right. I know that this is what happened, but it's up to you guys. You can all decide if, like, what's going to happen. And Bianchi decides, we're going to tell the Yugoslavian police that it's um, this other simple explanation that you gave. And then everyone's like, wahoo, we got away with it. And then there's a really weird receiving line where everyone cheers with champagne, and that's it. She made it sound abrupt, but it really actually was like that. They set up at least, like, the first half of the movie is that is like setting this whole thing up and meeting everybody and seeing everyone interact the actual room time was 30 minutes long because he was laying out all this stuff this like bonkers like interconnect like if poirot had had a murder board with red yarn it would have made complete (laughs) sense because you would need it for this yeah oh i actually separately from my notes wrote down the name of every person and then also their connection to the because like okay who has seen any version of this story before oh here's my okay do you mind if i ask a follow-up question how many versions of this have each of you seen i have seen the david suchet version and that is it other than this I've seen this version before. This was the first version I saw, and then I saw the David Suchet version afterwards. I have seen this ver- This is actually the first part oh. thing I think I've ever seen. I saw the new one, too, with Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, same. Forgot okay. That. So I have seen, yeah, I'm the same as Maddie as I've seen all, like, David Suchet, Kenneth Branagh, and this one. But I do think... I've seen this first because I remember renting it like in high school or maybe something after we were doing the butler did it, the play, and I wanted to like watch some mystery stuff. And this is I remember very obvious that. Yeah, yeah, so I rented this and I feel like we watched it almost all together, but maybe not. Not me. Maybe it was not me. We definitely did. I had weird memories of an oddly tan and probably racially insensitive Sean Connery role. By the There's way, no Sean Connery Sean Connery played an Indian guy in this movie. So no, back- he didn't. Wasn't he supposed to be Indian? Why did they no. make him so tan? He was in the British Army, but like stationed in India. At this point, India was still, like, part of the Commonwealth and very, like, oppressed. And I have a fun story about that, actually. <laughs> oh, wait, Max, yes, what? Carrie, you please seen... share with us this fun story of... Yes, I've seen exactly what you've seen. Carrie, please share with us this fun story of colonial oppression. Okay, it's not necessarily directly related to colonial oppression, but somebody who was involved in 
the opposite. So Agatha Christie hated all of the adaptations of her work, basically, um, and didn't want to sell any of her stuff. So the one of the producers who um, talked to his father-in-law to help them approach Agatha Christie, his father-in-law just happened to be Lord Mountbatten, who was uh, given the uh, voice the viceroyship of India in 1947 and charged with overseeing the transition of British India to independent India in 1948. Mountbatten is also the uncle of Prince Philip. Hmm. Thank you for the tidbit. Fun fact! That was so fun. I had anyway. a great time. So Sean Connery was not playing... Uh, an Indian man. He was playing a British army officer from India. That's not to say he wasn't racist, because he no, definitely I... was. Yeah, no, there's... He called Poirot a frog. Like, first thing. Yes. Yeah. So rude. Like, that's how you, he's introduced, is by calling Poirot a frog. Which, like, he's Belgian. Exactly, yeah. so it's like double that. Yeah. Um... Katie, I have a question. Because I feel like you would know this, but is it like a thing to make all of the actors in this movie like someone famous? Yes. So the point of the casting I mean, of the movie, yeah, I mean, like, and the like, and movies later on in, in the murder yeah. in, in the Orient Express's career as well. It is definitely, I think it's, I don't know if it started with this, but it is definitely the trope of murder on the Orient Express. Maybe it did start with this and then they kept it up with, because even in the Suchet one, even though it was made for television, there's a lot of famous British actors. And then obviously the Kenneth Branagh one has like tons of famous people in it. And I do think it was because it was like, we've talked about this before, where like if you have a special stunt guest casting. star on like, yeah, stunt casting means like, oh, clearly you're the killer because... Creepy janitor Brian Cranston. <laughs> exactly. It's probably oh, yeah, creepy that, janitor Brian Or like CSI Justin Bieber. Exactly. Yeah. So like this is be- this was cast and I, these are all super famous people and even to us today I recognize at least half of them. So yeah. they're and it's supposed to be like that so you don't actually No, you can't point out the stunt casting because it's all stunt casting. Yeah, it's not Sean Connery and then a bunch of nobodies. <laughs> it's like Sean Connery and Lauren Bacall and Ingrid Yeah, Bergen yeah, we we all recognize Vanessa everybody. We, yeah. yeah, I know all those names. That's okay, Mac. <laughs> You're a young man. Yes. A oh, young boy. By the way, uh, just a cursory note. I've explained it before on the podcast. Uh, still surprised that Sean Connery is still alive. As of this recording. What? Why are you surprised? I don't know. I was ever like. Here's the thing: when I was a child, I saw him as an old man in a movie that came out before I was born. There's a thing that I've come to realize in um, editing and listening to our podcast uh, that Mac is completely untethered from time. <laughs> he does not realize <laughs> when things happen. What decade things are <laughs> occurring in, uh, how old people are, or when they would have been alive, or what trends are happening, ever. 
Excuse you, ma'am. I will not take this kind of offense. I will take my ascot, my my 70s mustache, and my, like, white leather glove from the 1700s. Thank you, ma'am. And I'm what still were you going to say, Katie? I want to say, in Mac's defense, because they have talked about this on um, James Bonding, where they talk about Connery as Bond, and... He was born in 1930s. So he's the same age as our grandpa. So he's 89 right now. And our grandpa is still what? alive, the one who's 89. Yeah. So, I didn't realize they were the same age. In all of the James Bond's movies, he's in his ni- he's in his 30s. But by the end, he definitely looks older than that. And they point out, like, a lot of people back then aged so much quicker because everyone was smoking all the time and drinking. And out in the so sun. Like, and out in the sun with zero protection and just like basically had all these crazy unhealthy habits that are different mm, from all the crazy unhealthy habits we have now. <laughs> like so they're not like eating processed foods and just sitting all the time, but like they're smoking all the time and being outside and so like in his defense it is kind of weird to think, okay, he looked older in this movie and he would have been what, forty four? I do when it was right. 30, 40, 50, 60, he was 44 when this came out. I could see that, I guess. But you could also see him being in his 50s or even like, like, it's just. I wouldn't see. I mean, the way he appears in this movie, I don't think 50s reads. Because also Lauren McCall looked a lot older than I remembered her, but also because I'd only seen her in stuff from she was like the 40s. Remind me, is she Mrs. Hubbard? Yes. So she's Mrs. Hubbard. And then the woman who stars in Casablanca, Ingrid Bergman, is the Gretchen Olsen. Lady or whatever. Or is it Greta? Greta. Greta. <laughs> Greta. Greta. Back to the I keep Laura. messing that up. I know, jeez. <gasps> Second one. Okay, speaking of Faro, what did we all think of Albert Finney? I kept expecting David Suchet. I missed him. <laughs> Look, we all love David Suchet, but just analyzing this one specific role, I think he did pretty all right. I think no-ish. Because of all of the people in this movie, his character's the only one that's so exaggerated that I don't believe he's a real person. I agree. I also, yeah, I was not really a fan of this performance for a few reasons. His accent work was not the best, and he had this strange way of holding himself where, like, his shoulders were up. He didn't appear to move his neck at all. Like, he would move, like, his shoulders to move his head and, like, had, like, this kind of, like, hunched thing. And, like, I just, I didn't really like the way he carried himself. And... An observant detective, I mean, would be able to move his head, I would think. Like, uh, I think one of the Batman movies will show you that quite a few detectives are incapable of turning their head. Thank you very much. LOL. <laughs> I was going to say, I think you took the direction that Poirot was kind of like an egg or a penguin. Very <laughs> seriously. Like, a little yeah. too seriously. And I know the... the out like his hair and mustache is not all his fault but like i think the combination of the hair that's basically a helmet 
so slicked back and hard, and the mustache is so... I will say, Agatha Christie did like this movie, actually, and she did like the mustache, because in the books, Poirot has the most magnificent mustache in all of Britain. She did not like Albert Finney's casting, though. Exactly, which I thought was weird. Huh. Excuse me, I just need to finish up on some fanfic where Poirot fights the penguin because this is the best thing I've ever seen. <laughs> but he does move so oddly. And the mustache and the accent and the fact that he's so shouty. Yelly. He's yelly. Yeah. Like, yeah. I can understand his frustration. And like in the Suchet one at the end, he's so mad because he's basically like, you all just murdered someone, and even though he was shitty, you got away with it. And, like, that was, this yeah, one, that... he's, like, so shouty, but, like... And it ends on such a strange celebratory tone. Like, there's literally um, Mrs. Hubbard and Elena are holding champagne. Everyone's, like, going down the line to, like, cheers them. And I wrote in my notes that Suchet Poirot is, like, he reads is much more complex and much more nuanced and torn about this decision like he's like you all do what you want but i'm really sad about it like he's he's angry and he's sad and he's kind of disgusted with like humanity and like his the murder on the orient express with Suchet is like much darker much darker i agree i really liked the one with david Suchet. like he was very I don't know. I think that um, Suchet's Poirot is very calm, even um, does not lose his temper, and he loses his temper in Murder on the Orient Express, so it means more. And yeah. it was yeah. like, wow. Yeah, I right. remember so, being like, afraid of him. Like, just shouty all, like, he, there's no nuance with this Poirot. Yeah. It's basically, said, oh, sorry. he's a douche. Future installments <laughs> of Murder on the Orient Express. Are we willing to expand the conversation out to the other movies? Or do we what want do to mean? save those for a potential other Well, if we talk about Murder on the Orient Express and the Kenneth Branagh version right now, will we lose what we could say about it later? No, I'm we we well, I haven't seen it, first of all, and also we are focusing on the move this particular movie version um the book has some differences then from this and obviously later movies have some differences like there's a 2001 movie with alfred molina which apparently was not good and like completely eliminate some characters and like there's different names like there's differences between a lot of the different movies so we're focusing on this one specifically today all right, never mind then. So ignore everything we said about David Suchet and how much we love him. <laughs> I want We're comparing say, and contrasting Poros! I want to say, though, I do kind of wonder if Finney felt an immense pressure. Because a lot of the people in this movie said yes to doing this movie because they wanted to work with him or, like, other actors. So, like, Lauren Bacall specifically said, I want to work with... Um, I think Bert is how she, what she called him, because he's Albert Finney. Mm -hmm. And also, Poirot at this point in time, Agatha Christie is still alive and still writing Poirot novels, and they are still popular. And in fact, 
it is directly after this movie when, spoiler alert, um, the last Poirot novel comes out in 1975, and it, the one that's called Curtain, and he, in that novel, does die because he's super old. And his obituary is on the front page of the New York Times. So, like, that shows, like, how popular this character was, even in America. Poirot's obituary. Poirot's obituary, yeah. So, I think, I wonder, I was actually, like, one who was watching this, wondering, like, did he feel this immense pressure to play this character in this, like, this is a huge studio movie with huge movie stars. And Mm -hmm. it is the 1970s. And, like, there's other things coming out at this time that are, like, big blockbuster stuff did that kind of inform his performance like i don't know do you feel it so you basically you're saying he might have been pressured into going a little bit uh, like a step further in order to keep up with the rest of hollywood maybe not pressured by external forces but feeling an internal pressure to portray this extremely popular character basically that's what i meant like for anyone who takes on hamlet like Hundred like tons of people have played Hamlet, and everyone's like, "How do you find something different? How do you find something new? How do you connect with this character?" I don't know. Is that did anyone get that, or is it like I was? No, I'm on board with that. I I I understand it, but also, he just he wasn't the best part of this movie, and that's kind of sad. Okay, Carrie, what was the best part of this movie? The dogs. (laughs) <laughs> they yeah. disappeared like after half an hour i was like where are they on this train that stopped in a snowdrift oh uh she's speaking specifically of princess uh what is it natalia nova or dragomirov 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 she had dogs <laughs> they were what still were they? there when they went to interrogate her were they okay because remember, this, this part was really funny. They went to go interrogate her. She was the only one they went to her room, or to her cabin, because everyone yeah. else was in, in the dining car. And they also, she's, her, she's old as hell. They picked up her dogs and then gave them to Bianchi to hold while he was interrogating her, so that they weren't, like, distracting or whatever. I forgot about that. Yeah, Maybe so I was he could down, sit next to her. I was probably writing down a note or something. So let's go over um, some of these characters and who they are in actuality and not as they pretend to be. Um, which I think Katie wrote down. I did write down. Well, I mean, I guess, I don't know if we need to go through all of them, but. Okay, but you literally just said that Poirot spent 30 minutes in the coach explaining how this whole thing worked. So there's like a lot of interconnecting things with characters and like the like yeah. how the murder occurred. So why don't you wrote it down? Well, okay. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff with the murder, which I will go over because I wrote it down. And then there's bananas amounts of red herrings. Yeah. Like, totally bananas but didn't they they set up once they realized poirot was on the train they were like oh no we have to come up with an alternate explanation for this guy being dead i can run through the red herrings uh whenever you guys need me to why don't okay so katie you tell us who everybody actually is and how they're connected to the armstrongs and then mac keep it brief yeah mac can tell us what the red herrings are 
I'm excited about this though because every time I've watched this, and this is what the f- I've seen the Poirot one at least, or the Suchet one twice. This is the second time I've seen this movie and the Branagh. So I have seen this story five times. Have you read I it? I can never remember and keep everything straight. No, I haven't read it. Because hmm. actually it was called The Murder on the Calais Coach originally or something like that. It was. But no one knew what that meant. So. Well, there was a Graham, there was a Graham Green book that came out in 1932 that was called Orient Express, which is why they changed the U.S. title of the book. And then there oh, was its uh, reboot on, uh, on, on American television, Calais Fornication. Shut up. Jerk! Gone. Shame. Okay. Too left. Mac, okay. you're not yeah, allowed I... to speak. Katie, you go ahead. You know that I like lists and things, so. But because of the amount of thing times I've watched this, I have never kept everything straight, and I always, always forget that the count and the countess are one stab. Because when I was writing out these characters, I was like, there's 13 people, but he only got stabbed twice or 12 times. And in my brain, I was like, did, was Mrs. Hubbard basically judge and she doesn't actually stab him? But no. Okay. So anyway, you have Mrs. Debenham. Wait, should we say how he actually dies first? Because I didn't do that. I just said that they were all the murderer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so basically, Everyone's connected to Daisy Armstrong. Katie will tell us how in a minute. But um, they all knew each other. They all knew. They kind of arranged for Ratchet slash um, Cassetti to be on this train. What? Because his secretary is one of them. Yes, exactly. Like his secretary and his butler have a way to like, con- like, yeah. Yeah, they they finagled him onto this train where everyone else planned. Because that's one of the things in the movie they were talking like, oh, like, what's going on? Is, like, Turkey going to war? Why is everyone on this train in the, like, off-season? Because um, Poirot didn't have any, like, there weren't any first-class coaches available for Poirot to take. Um, which his friend, the director of the line, was very sad about. But, um, so everyone is on this train in the off-season. They basically, like, like took over this coach to murder this guy. Um, so... He is drugged so that he can't, like, fight back. And then everyone files through um, Mrs. Hubbard's room, who is actually, um, what's? Arden. Okay, so um, Mrs. Armstrong's mother, the grandmother of Daisy Armstrong, the little girl who was kidnapped and killed, has the connecting room to Ratchet slash Cassetti. And everyone in the coach who is... Direct, like related to the Armstrongs in some way, files through um, Lisa, Linda, or Lisa? Linda? Files through... This whole part doesn't super matter. Right? Okay, so they file through the, the one room to get to Cassetti's room, and everyone takes the knife and stabs Cassetti with it. And then they pass it on to the next person, and they stab Cassetti with it. So that everyone... T- and they're like, for whoever. You know, like, for my daughter... The maid who killed herself. Stab. You know, like, for my granddaughter, Daisy Armstrong. Stab. You know, so everyone stabs the body. Maybe we should also mention, okay, so the little girl gets kidnapped. Everyone goes bananas. Then they find her body. It's super sad. Um, Then her mom, her dad, her uh, maid, and, uh, like, her mom and her dad both... 
There's so her mom, her mom was pregnant. Her yeah. mom died because of the shock. She was pregnant, so they were like, there's two deaths there with the mother and the unborn child. And then yep. the father killed himself, and then the maid uh, was accused of having something to do with the death, so she killed herself. So right. there are five deaths. There's Daisy, there's the stillborn child, there's Mrs. Armstrong, there's Mr. Armstrong, and then the maid... And then there's the actual baby itself. Paulette. Paulette. She said Daisy already. I did. Yeah, so there's Daisy, the little girl who was kidnapped and killed. There's uh, Mrs. Armstrong and her unborn child. There's Mr. Armstrong, who uh, dies by suicide after losing all of his family. And then there's Paulette Michelle, who uh, is the maid who was like suspected of having something to do with it, was proven innocent after she died. After she died okay. by suicide. Okay. I'm just going to run through these real quick, because honestly, I don't know if this is super matters, but... Okay. Mrs. Debenham is a secretary to Mrs. A. She was part of the household, um, and she was sad when they died. Obviously, we just talked about Mrs. Hubbard is Daisy's grandmother, Mrs. A's mother. She's obviously pissed off. Greta is the nanny. So she was the nanny who was tied up when the little girl was kidnapped. She kind of blames herself. The Countess and Andrini, and then her husband, the Count, um, are actually the sister of Mrs. Armstrong. So they, she um, kind of comes back with this Count, and they're one stab. Like, so they're actually two. The two people count as one. Um, Pierre is Paulette's dad, so he's the dad of the maid. Pierre Michel, yeah. So Pierre Michel, um, Colonel, the Colonel. Ab- Arbutnot, whatever his name is. I can't Ar- remember. Wait, it's Arbutnot. Ar- Arbutnot. 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 Colonel Arbutnot um, is basically Mr. Armstrong's army friend. Like, they knew each other back in the day. And he, I think he was, like, back in the States when this happened. And, like, he could see the grief. I can't remember. Um, Beddoes is actually, who is Mr. Um, who is Ratchet's, like, valet, butler was originally the Armstrong's butler and in the household. Princess Dragomirov was Mrs. Armstrong's godmother, so she was very close to the family. Um, McQueen, Anthony Perkins, um, was actually his dad. What? Hector. It's Hector McQueen. Hector McQueen. I just called him McQueen on my paper. I'm sorry. Who's Anthony Perkins? Anthony Perkins is the actor. Oh, the guy from Psycho. I knew that, but I didn't know his actual okay. name. Sorry. That's okay. Um, his father was the DA in the Armstrong case, and he became close with Mrs. Armstrong after the fact, like immediately after the fact. Um, and he was devastated when she ended up dying. Of, I thought she died in childbirth. Yeah, yeah she did. Okay, but like also like she was like already broken because of her first child being dead. Yeah. Um, Hildegard Schmidt, who is currently working for the princess, but she used to be the cook at the Armstrong household. Um, Cypress Hardman, who, when he first introduced himself, I thought he said my name was Dick Hardman, and I started laughing. I no, he did. He <laughs> but said, anyway, that was his nickname. I wrote down Dick Hardman. Me too. And then he was called Cypress the rest of the time. Yeah, okay. it was like some anyway. nickname. It's stupid. 
yeah, he was a he was a cop and he was one of the investigators on the kidnapping and he was also in love with Paulette. So he had like a double yeah. like thing. And then finally Foscarelli um was the chauffeur of the Armstrongs and they kind of thought he might have had like I think he was under suspicion as well. The uh the getaway car almost ran his car off the road the night that the girl was kidnapped, so it makes sense right. that he would fall under suspicion. So, like, all of this stuff is connecting. I do have a question, though. Yes. Now that we've laid this all out, why would Cassetti slash Ratchet get on this train? He just thinks it's a train to get to wherever he's going. I don't know if he ever, like, directly met. Did he know anyone I... in the household? Um, no. Let me think. The butler, he hit from the back of the head, so he probably wouldn't have known that his own butler was also the Armstrong's butler. No, 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 because he wasn't the one who directly kidnapped her. He was responsible for it. They yes. caught the guy who did it, and and he was put to death by the justice system. I was going to put this yeah. forward to you guys. Do you think Cassetti deserved to die? I have that note on my, like, what what topics we should talk about. Me too! Is Me it justified? Three. Um, in the in the end, Poirot keeps talking about 12, 12, 12, 12 good men in true. And that was when I very first watched this movie. I was like, oh, duh, you have a jury of 12 people. I don't know. I think he did. Like, I don't know if I would have done it quite this way. Like, I would have preferred for him to have been, like, arrested. But my question is, what if there's no evidence to connect him to the case? But here's my other problem. I do think you can have 12 people on a jury, but the, isn't the point of a jury that you're impartial? You have to recuse yeah. yourself if there's any direct connection between you and anything Which, to do with the case. This movie might as well be called Everyone Has a Direct Connection <laughs> to yes. this guy. It's Party of the Red Herrings because everyone actually has a connection. It's like that sketch from the beginning of The Incredibles where like the entire jury is those people in neck braces from the train crash. <laughs> yeah like i don't know maddie what do you think um i mean i think you mentioned something important that like what if there's no evidence actually pointing to this guy and if there is everyone would deny it so they kind of maybe this is their kind of like they knew that they weren't going to be able to go through the justice system, so they did, like, vigilante justice and but did their own thing. Do you guys think that you could stab someone? Like, could you do this? Like, you, could you help orchestrate the murder, the group murder of someone who was responsible for the death of someone you loved? Well, that kind of leads to your connection with the person that you loved. And it's also a roundabout, a roundabout way of my next question. Who do you think had the most and least reason to be part of this group? That was also one of my questions. Because the doctor was like, there are three really strong stabs that are likely lethal. And there's like three weak stabs that are basically like scratches. But you guys didn't answer my question. Do you think you could do this? Could I stab a person if, say, one of you had been... Uh, if they were responsible See, for one of your deaths? That's what I think. 
I feel like Mrs. Hubbard slash Arden slash Lauren Bacall was more justified, like, had more anger because it was her daughter and granddaughter versus, like, McQueen. Maybe, yeah, like, he really liked Mrs. Armstrong. Like, by the way, is that actor just routinely in creepy relationships with moms? Mother figures. He got a little creepy at the end of this. Yeah, he did. I've only seen him in this, but he called her Mother Armstrong. Yeah, that was a little strange. Did you see him at the end, by the way? After all of this happened and they're sitting? Did you see that? The weird scarf that he's wearing? No! And he gets up and bows? They're sitting. He, Poirot goes to sit down after Bianca says, we're gonna pretend that, that Cassetti was stabbed by this random guy who got on the train wearing the fake, um, uniform and then jumped out the window and so Paro goes to sit down and then Hector McQueen like touches his leg and then like pulls it away when Paro to looks to him like what did are not, you doing did not don't that. you dare touch me all yeah, I saw was, was him wearing a very long weird scarf thing and then, like bowing weirdly so yeah, I, I did know. not notice that either anyway yeah like so he has less of a connection than Lauren McCall or even like see that's I think Max right it depends I don't know if I could I will be any I'm gonna be totally honest before the last couple years I probably would have said there isn't a person who I would actually want to stab but honestly there are people I actually want to stab and they haven't even killed anyone I know so maybe if this if I had a child and someone kidnapped that child and made me terrified for their life and then ended up killing that child i would be furious and yeah. sad and no grandchild i'm just like i'm trying to equate it like like yeah. if anything happened to my honorary nephew i you would oh, not i mean not would, that it's you would have to uh. hold me back like i would i could not i could not because Oh. I think, yeah, the frustration is that there's no evidence to tie in. Like, how frustrating is that? And, I mean, this is America. A lot of times there is evidence and no one does anything about it. So, like, but, I you mean, feel that, like... And he's in the mob. Now. Yeah. They talk about the fact that he's in the mob. He's got connections. Yeah. So, really, I wonder... Oh, I've never thought about this. Immediately, like... After in five viewings. If he's in the mob... Maybe that's why they were all like, we all have to do it so the mob can't blame one person. I, I'm just extrapolating. That's clearly not in the book. But I'm like, yeah, maybe that's one of the reasons. I maybe. Mean, maybe. I don't think he was really strong with his mob ties because he was in Europe. He had fled America to avoid prosecution for this. But it's never a bad idea to play the odds. And have 12 people responsible for a murder instead of one. Yeah. Ugh. You guys, who's on your who's on your fantasy murder draft? <laughs> I Okay, no, that's incriminating. What if something happens to one of them? Yeah. I, am not, I will say also, no. if no, no, I no. wanted... Not who I don't would you, think stabbing not is who the would way you to go. kill, but, uh, you know, who, who, who are you inviting along? Okay, stop with no the weird shoulder shaking. I don't like this. Max doing a weird shimmy when he's like, ooh, murder draft. Who would you invite a lock? No. Stop. 
Also, I don't think stabbing would be the way I would go about it, to be honest. Poison? Yeah, I think poison's It's unreliable. What is the thing that it's like, um, poison is a woman's, uh, thing, and then somebody's like, it has its deficits in hand-to-hand combat? (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. Oh, what is that? That's gonna kill me. Google it. Honestly, if I were gonna have a murder implement, it'd probably be that weird piston thing from, uh, you know, like they use it to execute pigs or farm animals. Oh. Oh, no. What? Yeah, it's it's quiet and it's quick. I know what you're talking Eesh. about. It's like you put it that up. Sounds fl- terrible. You put it up flush against some like a a pig's skull, and then you press a button, and it like pushes like you said a piston, like a metal bar or something, into their brains. Yeah. Not great. Not great. Um, I wait. Have we kind of? Have we decided that this is probably justified and it might not be the best way to go about it, but... I mean, kind of, but I think that might also partially be because of this particular movie and the way it portrays it. Like, in the Suchet one, it feels a lot more ambiguous. And he is... They do break... They play up the Catholicism in that, and he's very, like... He's like, you're... It's a huge sin to kill a person no matter what they did. There's there's actually another way that's kind of gone about this. In the David Suchet one, I think they did represent Cassetti as the one that, you know, ended the kid's life. In this one, they said they were just the boss. They just planned it. He could have killed her. And one thing that just kind of sticks inside of my head is uh, uh, the... uh, Okay, so you said that this was a, a direct comparison to the Lindbergh baby, right? It's very yeah, similar. I, yeah, made me well, think I, of. There are echoes. I did some learning about the Lindbergh baby in preparation for this podcast. Okay. And the leading theory is that the guy who kidnapped the baby, like, the death was an accident. All right. But is that a leading theory that was developed recently? Because this book was published in 1934. The Lindbergh baby thing happened and I think 1928, so that would have been four years later. Who knows what they knew then? No, actually, this was discovered right around when the body of the, the baby was found, because they found out that it was trauma done to the head in a manner similar to being dropped, and Lindbergh remembers a, a thudding wooden sound that night. Oof. Let, Oof. Okay, let's not hypothesize Oof. about what happened to a real Let's life not think about child that. okay you know what there's uh, there's less drastic aspects to the case uh there's uh, like I um could, okay I could talk about let's, the murders let's pull skills. back let's pull back and i want to talk about the costumes and makeup a little <gasps> oh my god yes Poro right, was so I'm upsetting back on i'm gonna take a quick back i do on this one. his he has okay he has a snakeskin robe yes his weird I mustache that. Mustache hairnet thing. Like, okay, no, but didn't Suchet had something similar that he wore to bed? He had like a a mustache cover thing. Yeah, but like not like a mustache hairnet. <laughs> hairnet, and then the lotion, and then the hand gloves, and like it was a whole process. They combed his eyebrow hair straight up. Straight up! Directly oh up. Oh my gosh. That's so I'm purposeful. so glad you mentioned that. I hate I, it! 
I specifically took screenshots and I was like, I hope somebody mentions his eyebrows because. I hate it so much. Uh, like, that's not a look. That's not like, okay, a mustache, however you do it, is a look. But having your eyebrows combed directly straight above your eyes is not something that's normal. I did not even notice. <laughs> it's directly. Once you I notice, guess. you can't stop, Maddie. Like, you can't not. I guess okay. I was lucky then. But then also, I think this is probably because it was the 70s, but a lot of people had very cakey whitish, like the Hector McQueen. Obviously, the princess looked like Dracula with her <laughs> hair and face like that. Like, quite literally, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Francis Ford Coppola, like... With the widow's peak in her hair, too. With the widow's peak and the two lumps and the white face, like... Didn't Poirot say something, too, about how she's a lot older than she wanted them to think? <laughs> Yeah. So that yeah. kind of that makes sense for her character. I think and there was also kind of douchey foundation problems, like yeah. cakey makeup that I didn't like. I wonder if it would be as obvious to audiences in theaters in '74 when this came out as it is to us on our laptops with the resolution the way it is in 2019. Probably not. That's why I think it was definitely the time because there's definitely like. Yeah, makeup I've seen in the 70s that looked bad. I do want to know, did anyone see the cool outfit the shepherd was wearing in the very, very beginning? The shepherd? Yes. I did see that. that was the goat cool. herder? It was like, I don't know, very, bl- like, it, like a it box. It looked like it was supposed to be like eyes. And I was wondering if that was to scare the goats so like he could herd them. Just like oh giant eyes. I did not see that. That would be scary. I noticed it made me run away. the countess's outfit. And the fact that the guy looked like he was made out of wax. Which guy? The Count. Oh, yeah. Who, by the way, was uh, played by Michael York, who also plays Asher Fleming in Gilmore Girls. Yes! <laughs> oh, my God! I was like, I know this guy, and I thought, my thought was... uh. Austin Powers, because he's at Austin Powers, is Nigel or whatever. Basil. Oh my god, Gilmore Girls, Carrie. Thank you. You're so welcome. I was thinking Austin Powers, for sure. Yeah, no, Um, he looked very waxy. The Countess had, like, feather hat weirdness. I was gonna say, lots of fun hats. Everybody (laughs) came with their best hat on. Did you see the feathers the Countess or the Princess was wearing at the end? No. No. (gasps) Wait, did I? I felt like it looked like something Amidala would have worn in Attack of the Clones. Like, <laughs> I mean, honestly, feathers, we like, all pow, saw it, pow. but none of us noted it. That's oh, amazing. Yeah. Attack of the Clones? The sexy outfit one? Yeah, the one with complete, like, why would she Why would she bring so many outfits when she's supposed to be on the run? Uh, and also, you ha- she you- keeps telling Anakin they can't be together, but let me put on my leather corset and nothing else. Okay, you can I'm not going to defend the leather corset, <laughs> but I will very much defend the Naboo thing, because uh, what you guys might not have known is that several of the princess's outfits uh, had secondary functions, such as escape hatches and hidden weapons as well. A lot of them even had blaster-proof fibers woven into the dresses as well, and I Let, am such revulsion from Carrie. Let the record show that Mackenzie is pretending to push glasses up his face like a nerd, and he is the only one of us who does not yet wear glasses. (laughs) Uh, And is the biggest nerd! 
I would like to note once again that Queen Amidala's dresses had escape hatches. Like, Whatever. literally. Okay. She would wear big dresses it. that would be, like, and have hatches in the back to be like, I need to make a quick escape. I need to leave this dress behind. That's pretty <laughs> cool. I like that. Um, I okay. That. I appreciated Mr. Beddoes. I think he was my favorite. Mr. Beddoes. He is a very famous British actor. Like, there's a theater in London named after him. What? That is famous yeah. there. Joseph, or er, John? Oh, shit. I forgot. Gilgund? Yes. Whatever. I can't pronounce it. I know who you're talking he about. Was, he did tons of theater. Very big Shakespeare. Like, lots and lots and lots. Like, Laurence Olivier type. Super fame. Well, he made Poirot laugh, and he made me laugh. And he <laughs> said that we should all have references for our employers. And not from our employers. And I liked that very much. Yeah. I agree. There were, I can't remember any of them, of course, but there were some moments I genuinely found funny and I laughed. I I remember one and I yes, wrote it yeah. down. Please. Um. So Mrs. Hubbard talked about her two husbands a lot and... <laughs> Poirot said something like, you've enjoyed relationships with both husbands with your eyes closed? And she was like, that helped. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I did like that. I have to say, I loved her and I loved her character in this film because she was so obnoxious and over the top and blah 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 and you and by the end you're like, oh, this was on purpose, this was like a she's an actress and she was always that, but I think it was it a character. At the end. Yeah, yeah. Like, she was playing a character, like, to make people not want to talk to her and avoid her forever. Yeah, that was clever. Something, she, was, she was funny. She's very good. Something that made me laugh was the uh, the person who was escorting Poirot to the hotel, I think it was. Um, The guy who was with Poirot on the ferry. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. He was, like, trying to recommend things for Poirot to do. Like to go that see he the had not personally done. Yeah, to go see like the Hagia <laughs> Sophia, and he was like, "Oh, this church, it's gorgeous. You should definitely go." And Poirot was like, "Oh, have you seen it?" And he was like, "No." <laughs> and that happened at <laughs> least twice or three times. He was like, "Oh, have you seen this?" No. It's like okay. Yeah. Ugh. And I. You should try quinoa. Okay. Have you tried quinoa? No. <laughs> I loved Pierre. I have to say that. Yeah, Pierre is awesome. The conductor guy. He spoke, first of all, he spoke so many languages. He was so helpful to everybody. And he started crying at one point, And I just, my heart goes out to him. I just, especially because it was just his daughter. She was just in service. And then this horrible thing happened. And then she's like, innocent, but gets blamed. Like, that kind of breaks your heart a little bit. And then he has to be the one. He is kind of orchestrating that thing because he can see the hallway and he can do all that stuff. Yeah. Like. And the fact that she died, she died by suicide too. Like to know that your daughter was feeling in such a way that that's the only avenue she saw. Like that's terrible. Yeah. Okay, go ahead, Mac. The different language thing kind of brings back what we were going to bring up. And that is all of the red herrings that wound, uh, wound up inside of this movie. So. Just Did you see the of... end at the ta the table of clues at the end? Quite yes. literally, he laid them all out. So, like, so essentially, 
The red herrings were meant to play out the scenario where a rival member of the mob shows up dressed up as an employee of this carriage company, sneaks into uh, Ratchet's cabin using a key that he found inside of one of the uniforms, sneak out through uh, um, the grandmother's cabin, and find their way out. The first and uh the okay so the first one that we encounter the red herring is Pierre knocking on Ratchet's door and there being a response in French that was supposed to signal to uh um uh Poirot, Poirot that the murder was happening then because Ratchet didn't speak French so he, it was inferred that uh he must have been murdered at that point even though he would not be murdered until later when everybody had an alibi. The next, when they actually went into the room, one of, not exactly the, uh, not exactly a red herring, but an actual clue was a burned up piece of paper that they found the words Daisy Armstrong written. Uh, then there was a broken watch, which was set to make it seem like the murder had happened between the hours of 12 and 2. Uh, there was a... Missing button from a employee's uniform, and then an employee's uniform missing a button with a universal key. Uh, and my favorite discovery of a red herring clue, a silk robe that uh, when Poirot discovered it hidden amongst his belongings, he caught it and then laughed the most evil laugh I have ever heard in my life. Okay, I had the subtitles on so I could get everyone's name spelling right. Literally says, laughing maniacally. Yeah. I took a screenshot of it! Yes. Because I, I also like had the subtitles. Same. It's, I've, I've, never gone, I've never done that. I've never been, like, doing a crossword at the airport or whatever. Hmm. And then suddenly I get the final one and I'm just like... <laughs> <laughs> I think also. you would do that, Mac. Okay, yeah, okay but like a normal person. Uh, you missed the fact that the real dagger shows up, quote unquote, in Lauren McCall's or Mrs. Hubbard's bag, which is so funny when they pan over to <laughs> her holding it. She's behind the glass in the dining car and just holding the knife. <laughs> yes, so dramatic. Just so drama. I think I wrote um, that down. And then the handkerchief. Yes, way to be dramatic, Mrs. Hubbard. Is what now, I down. my question is, was the handkerchief meant to be a red herring? Because that did inevitably lead Poirot back to the princess. I don't know. Because the Poir- the um, the handkerchief had a couple different interpretations. Like There were a few things about it. It was very fancy, lace, embroidered with the letter H. So there was... But- it turned out to be the Russian letter N. Yes. This, yeah, the Cyrillic alphabet. I don't think it was on purpose because that was something that directly led to Poirot figuring out what their whole deal was. Yeah. Or maybe they were just betting that Poirot didn't know Russian. No, because then um, the Countess, her name actually started with an H. And they tried to, like, blot that out on her um, passport. Ah, right. Although that, no, that didn't have anything to do with uh, 
The handkerchief? No. Because they tried to blot out her name because... Shit, no. Did that have anything to do with the fact that one person said their name was Grunwald and that turned out to be just Green- the German Greenwald. version of Greenwood? Greenwood, yeah. I don't think so. I don't think so. Maybe. Oh, I don't hey, care about uh, any fact, of this. Grunwald means Greenwood. I know. Anyway. This doesn't matter. Exactly. What does the whole matter point is that is none that of it they... is matters. They kept calling it a peep cleaner. <laughs> yes! Peep. Peep. What? I thought, okay, when Paro said it, I thought it was his accent, and then Sean Connery repeated it, and I went, no! No, I was like, is this Sean Connery joke? is making fun of Poirot's accent. Yes, accurate. Is he? Yes. Oh. Because when I was watching okay. the subtitles, Peep was in uh, quotation marks. What a dick. Yeah. He is. What? Sean Connery's not nice? Okay, no. <laughs> I literally, one of my notes, this behavior does not behoove James Bond. Uh, okay. <laughs> Name is, call. Uh, okay. Making fun of somebody's accent would be the least offensive thing James Bond <laughs> has ever done. Have you seen You Only Live Twice? I've seen all of them. The one them. where he literally turns into an Asian person. He used a lady as a bullet shield and then just straight up told some people, I can't dance with her, she's dead, and let her down in a chair. <laughs> there are different iterations Yikes. of James Bond. That's true. But also, he I did love, call Poirot a frog. It. Yeah. Um, I just have a couple more notes to cover. If you don't mind. No. Can't do yes, I mind. I don't like, Stop. I don't like that they had some weird jump scares in the very beginning. With the newspaper, like, flashing to the negative and back. Mm. Did you see that? Like, it, I didn't like that. Is that you supposed mean, like, to the very beginning? Yeah, the very, very beginning with the spinning newspapers. Is that supposed to be a jump scare? I don't know if it's a jump scare, but it definitely, scare. if I was someone who had, like, seizures, would probably cause it. Oh. The biggest jump scare, clearly, was the, we're just going to pan very, 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 very slowly and slowly and slowly and slowly until you're like, what the fuck are you looking at? And then all of a sudden the train light, BAM! comes in your face. Yeah. And I didn't like that. My my biggest jump scare was when the music went really hard when they were going through the uh like the title cards of all the different actors and it it just went so hard on Michael Redgrave for some reason. Michael Redgrave? So I think it was. That's not a person. That is a person, but he wasn't in this movie. <laughs> Well, I don't know. Somebody named Michael had a... There was an orchestral beat on somebody named Michael, and it scared me, because I was trying to work on something. Do you think the background of the titles being silky, sexy, pink fabric was probably not appropriate for this movie? I don't There are a lot of things that were not appropriate for this movie. Um. A.K.A. the celebratory feeling in the end. Yeah. I did really like the beginning in the train station. I felt they they actually portrayed a lot of different cultures, and I think in a slightly, honestly, better way than they might have done now. Like, there were definitely, like, African royalty and people wearing burkas, and then, like, random French people, and then, like, they were showing the preparation of the food for the train, like, with the oysters and the packing, and then the, like, I liked that bustle of the, like, international train port. The one moment at the train station... Except for the I, hawkers. The hawkers were very, uh, very, uh, racist. Very stereotypical. And the beginning scene when the train was just taking off, 
that was when I was most acutely aware that this movie takes place in the 70s. Because again, one thing that is indicative of the 70s is high contrast night shots. Made in the 70s, not takes place in the 70s. Uh, well, yeah, I, you, no, the production took place in the 70s. You get Thank what I mean. You. I get what you mean, but I had to call you out. That's I'm your older sister. That's what happens. If this was Poirot, if Poirot took place in the 70s, he would absolutely have a handlebar mustache. Okay. No. Maybe. Um, my one of my last notes. I don't understand. Can you guys? Do you guys remember somebody punching someone in the face? Yes. Yeah, uh, Sean Connery punched. Which one was Pierre? it? The doctor. Oh, he punched. Doctor. Was it the doctor? He could not know. Doctor Constantine was super old. I don't think he would have punched him. He it was. Mm. Did he almost punch Poirot? Because or Bianchi or, Bianchi or Pierre? It might have been Bianchi. It was. They because, were. Wasn't it when they were interrogating? I think it was Mrs. Pierre because he's in love with her. Yeah. yeah, I think it was Pierre though. Oh, that's what it's about. So after that, it was. I don't know. What that he just saying? walked out of the room and was like, "Hey, sorry, I punched you." Yeah, yeah, that was my note. Ha ha ha! Provocation. I just punched you in the face. It's it's fine. It's that whole. And I didn't like it. Toxic masculinity thing. Yeah. I will mention there is one thing that I liked in this movie that's kind of counter to toxic masculinity. Uh, it is when Bianchi and Poirot are just kind of having dinner at a train when he sees the young married couple. Uh, walking off to their cabin. And uh, Poirot just casually says, oh, thank God we're not young anymore. And that's, I like that attitude for old men to have where it's like, thank God we don't have to deal with any of that stuff. We can just be old. There's a certain nobility in that. In or not you mean wanting... like, kind of like they don't have to participate in the toxic masculinity? No, more just that, like, toxic masculinity in this day and age, one of the effects is that men feel like they have to be, you know, strong, virile, sexual creatures well into their 60s. Meanwhile, back then, men could be like, okay, I'm 52, I don't have to care anymore, that's a young man's game. I'm just gonna stand here, wax my mustache, and solve some murders. Do you think that Poirot's 52? No, but he clearly regards himself as an older man because he says, thank God we're not young. How old do you think Poirot is? I think he's 52. Now I think he is. <laughs> wow. Stop it, okay? I'm not good. Human aging confuses me. Are you an alien? I actually don't know. <laughs> Untethered from time. Because his, oh. ha his hair is clearly dyed. Yeah. I think. Well, so, it was like, his pillow had color on it. How, you know what? How old Ooh, is Poirot? Know. Please answer me this, oh masters of the universe. <laughs> late 70s. I was thinking like late 60s, early 70s for this particular movie. Yeah, mid to late 70s. I would say late 60s. So your dis your descriptions have varied by the better part of a decade. No, I would say that our descriptions have varied by like five years, like late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, yeah. Ish. Yeah. Um, do you guys remember, did David Suchet ever smoke as Poirot? I feel like he had to have, but when I saw Poirot smoking in the beginning of this movie, I was very jarred. I was like, this seems like a disgusting habit that I don't think he would have done. 
Mm, I don't know. With all of, like, the little, I guess, things that go along with smoking, like, peep cleaners. Um, <laughs> Matches. It's Ooh, like, I don't know, I feel like it's a fastidious little thing that Poirot might have done. I don't he, know. He does, like, the rituals yeah, involved Yeah, that's in what things. I'm thinking. Yeah, And I feel like half of the reason, at least in the pop culture I've consumed, like, the whole thing about smoking a pipe can be very fastidious and very ritualistic. You know, like the cleaning and the scraping and the stuffing and the lighting and the smoking and yeah, 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 yeah. tobacco pouches. Um, my last big notes is just like, I don't understand the doctor. I think he said that Ratchet was frontally stabbed 12 times. Yep. How is that a term? <laughs> looks like Albert Einstein with bananas hair. And he, how can he look at a knife and go, this is human blood? No, he can't. He was looking at it with exactly. a magnifying glass. It's like, you can't he tell like, if it's human blood with a magnifying glass. No, you guys, you don't understand. Somebody had written human in the blood with their <laughs> fingers so clearly. <laughs> human. I'm going to label this. So human. Sure. Yeah, and no. obviously it was still bright red because that's how blood do. And with I mean with yeah. cuts you could look for tears in the skin or clean cuts. So if it was a sharp blade, you can maybe do that, but that's more of the um the shallower wounds than the deep stabs. So I don't think he could be a hundred percent certain that that type of blade was responsible for all twelve stabs. Speaking of stabs yeah, yeah. How many stabs? Uh, wait, no, I have one last question. Alright, fine. And it's mostly for Katie, because I feel like she'd be the one who knows. Um, when Poirot has that tiny little cup thing with the straw, the green drink, what is that? Absinthe. <laughs> no. I have no I have no idea. I thought I was it was like, absinthe. I did think it was like a creme de menthe type thing. It could well, I mean if it was a creme de menthe, it wouldn't be um it would be opaque. Isn't that a, a dessert cocktail? Because, like, in the 1930s, cocktails became a thing, right? Yeah. Like, starting in the 20s, like, sure. with the young, young uns? I don't think oh, it was no, a, it was with Prohibition, though. because um, they started making things that weren't alcoholic, and, like, trying to make, I don't know, cool drink mixes. Because I think that's how bitters oh, were made. No, no, and... Wasn't it because they were making oh, alcohol okay. illegally, but it was so shitty that they had to mix it with stuff? Maybe. I don't know. Wait, I think it's a prohibition the... thing, though. Uh, are you talking about why absinthe is green, or...? No. no. Like, how cocktails were made instead Maybe of just being like, absinthe. drink my ale. I don't think it was absinthe. I mean, if it was Poirot and he was drinking absinthe, he would do the whole thing with the water and the sugar cube and the slotted spoon on it. Either way, it was drunk through a straw, and I found it not great. It was weird. Unsettling. <laughs> it's really weird. I, I'm still curious about what that is. Um, Before we do stabs, we gotta talk about the PBS. Yes, please. Which is 6 to 13 <gasps> in favor of the men. Oh, gross. I know. All, there are only six women, and they're all, like, six women who, like, did some stabbing. And Wait, then you hold six... up. So that means we got a 50-50 murderer. I mean, that's interesting, I thought. The six men and six women. But then if you talk about 
Okay, you have the six men who did the stabbing. Then you have Poirot, Bianchi, Dr. Constantine, and then they had Miss Ratchet. And there were two men who didn't get names, but who did speak, like the waiter and then the military guy. So did we have any women in this that were not murderers? Nope. You know, actually, hypothetically, some of the lighter cuts could have been the women. I mean, one of them was clearly the Countess, because she was, like, not about doing it. And one of them was probably the Princess, because she was, like, 90 years old. Yeah. yeah I'm picture- I almost picture the Countess doing the murder like uh, like the old guy from uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where they're both just holding her hand with the knife. Sure. Okay, so let's do stabs. Mac, you go first. Oh, wait, I have one, I have one final note. Okay, go. Uh... Ratchet looks like if you melted modern day Michael Keaton just a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I can see that. Oh, did you ask my stabs? Yes, go. Uh, I mean, I've seen it before, but also... I'm going to give it a solid six and a half. Okay. Maddie? Um, I would give it... I found it an enjoyable movie, but I feel like I was going in having seen it before and with kind of the air of ridiculousness that was Albert Finney's Poirot. So I say seven stabs. Katie? I think as a mystery, I'm giving it like 9.5. I mean, I rem- the first time you watch it, finding out that everyone did it was like, what? Like, it was such a shock to me when I first watched it. So, in terms of just looking at it as a mystery property, I'm going 9.5. Even though it's, and the, I'm only taking away the point five because it's almost too complicated that you can't figure stuff out. So even the fifth time I've seen this story, I am still confused a little. <laughs> what about, like, but, as yeah, a movie? In terms of the actual movie and adaptation... I yeah, I think I'm going like seven asterisk with the understanding that I I have a I have the context for when it was made and with whom. Okay. Uh I think mystery-wise I would give it 8 because you aren't really given enough to piece it together yourself. I don't think like everything's there for you, but like there's just, there's, it's too much. I don't know. Like, maybe 8.5. I'll say 8.5 for the mystery itself and a 7.5 for the movie. Hmm. All right. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Cool. I liked it, right. but it was weird. It was enjoyable. I do think the Suchet one is superior. Well. And I think that the one that came out last year is... Very theatric, but enough of a movie that you could watch it. Although making Willem Dafoe give... a fake Nazi was weird. <laughs> Spoilers. I'm not going to say anything about that movie because Carrie hasn't seen it and because we're probably going to cover it at some point. Except for the fact that it that the person who plays Ratchet is Johnny Depp and it was very satisfying to see him stabbed a lot. Yes, that would yes. be that would be nice. I would I would look forward yep. to that. Yep. Wouldn't it be nice? Okay, so uh, for our next episode, we are going to be watching the movie The Nice Guys, made in 2016 with Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe. So do that. 
if you want to uh, follow along with context and not just our random babbling. Um, Even if you don't listen, please watch it. It's a good movie. <laughs> so people who don't listen to this podcast, <laughs> let me tell you, on this podcast. Exactly. Uh, I've, all right. I've, I've written myself into a corner. So does anyone have anything else before I finish up? Nope. No. Okay, cool. All right. Sorry so- to Albert Finney, but I didn't like you. <laughs> You're better in other things. Daddy Warbucks. My heart. Okay, so, uh, yeah, that's it for uh, the 1974 Murder on the Orient Express. If you um, want to send us any questions or comments or whatever, um, we have an email address, mostly murder, but sometimes not at gmail.com, which is the same as our website, mostly murder, but sometimes not dot com. And we are on both Twitter and Instagram. The handles there are at mostly murder pod. Uh, you can obviously, if you're listening to us, you know where to find us. But we're on Spotify and Apple Music or Apple Podcasts. I'm not into Apple. I don't know what they call their things. Um, but you know, you can find us. We're around. <laughs> Corporate cult. So sorry. <laughs> All right. Okay. Cool. Bye. Bye. I guess that's it. Is, All right. Is this how we end things? We don't yep. have a way to end things. We just are awkward until we decide to hit the stop button. <laughs> You're done. All right. Okay. So, bye. Bye, everyone. <laughs>